Good morning, everybody. How are we? Good, good. We're going to dive right in this morning. Um, just to kind of piggyback on some of the stuff that Angela just talked about and to give you guys one other um, kind of announcement. So our Good Friday service will be this Friday. For those of you that have been around with us for the last two and a half years as we've been working through the book of Matthew, uh, this Friday is going to be a portion of that study. So I mean, this morning I'll be in Matthew 26, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll finish out Matthew 26 and 27 at our Good Friday service, and so that'll be part of the study. Next Sunday will obviously be Easter, we'll talk through the resurrection, and then the Sunday after that will be our last study in the book of Matthew, last Sunday in the book of Matthew. Um, so I would encourage you guys uh, to be there at Good Friday. Uh, this coming Friday, because I think it'll be a sweet time for our church, a time of scripture reading, a time of worship and prayer, just to be together with Jesus' church that night. So it'll be a good time, 6.30 at uh, the Archwood Hall across the street from our building. Second thing, um, as many of you know, with everything that's going on in Ukraine, um, our, our friends and one of our elders, Dan Stolbarger and, and Sharon, have some friends that lead a ministry in Israel and they're actually um, trying to raise support right now to, they're bringing in Jewish Ukrainian refugees from Ukraine. And um, they're, they're looking for tons of supplies to help care for them while they're there because the husbands are being left behind in Ukraine to fight. And so most of it's wives and children that have come to Israel that are being cared for. And so um, our church is committing to send like $5,000 over there to help provide for a bunch of supplies. And we wanted to just put a website up here. If you guys would like to go uh, give towards Ukrainian relief, you can do so as well. Ministrytoisrael.com slash donate. You can select the tab Ukraine and you can give right there and it'll be used for that purpose. So um, there's also, if you come grab one of us afterwards, we can give you a website you can go to if you want to see a list of things and how that money is being used. It's, for instance, you know, $30 buys uh, a certain amount of diapers or you can, $100 buys a stroller or whatever it is. And so you can see how that money is being used by the ministry over there in Israel. You can grab one of us and we can chat you through that. So that's that. Um, third thing, this morning is Palm Sunday. Isn't that awesome? Um, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a what? A donkey. And as they laid down these palm branches and declared him king, like they recognized him as king. And they, they, they shouted, Hosanna, which meant save us. And um, what an awesome thing that we get to look towards this next week is this holy week. And I just would encourage you as the body of Christ to immerse yourself in this next week. Take advantage of it. Read through the scriptures. Take time to pray and actually seek Jesus this week. It's a big week for the church. And then as we look at next Sunday, Easter Sunday, man, what a cool Sunday for us to invite friends and neighbors and family to come be a part of uh, that celebration with us as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. This is really like a monumental week for the Christian church. And so what a better way for us to celebrate this than to actually invite others to be a part of this with us to actually hear the gospel truths of Jesus and have the opportunity to proclaim his, him as king even in their own lives. So um, this morning we'll be in Matthew 26, just the first 13 verses. And I'm going to preface this morning's message by saying 
I, I will take a little bit of a different approach to this passage this morning. Um, and really there's three things that I kind of want to po- point out this morning in this passage with regards to our devotion to Jesus and how that pans out in our lives. So if you'll pray with me, um, let's, let's uh, actually stand with me, let's read this text and then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Matthew 26 verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that, two day, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive anointment, and she poured it out on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we lift up this time to you this morning. We pray that your spirit really would move um, through this text, Lord, in our hearts. There are those of us in this room that come here this morning, God, seeking for answers, looking for something, trying to satiate every part of our life with everything we can, only to find that we haven't found the one thing of real substance. And I pray this morning, Jesus, as we turn our hearts and our attention to you, that you'd meet us in this place, God, that you remind us of your love for us, God, you'd remind us of your kingship, God, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And uh, we turn our attention to you, Jesus. I pray you remove the distractions from our week or from our morning. And uh, God, that we would just wholly and truly uh, give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Um, Throughout the the book of Matthew, I think Matthew sort of desires for us to, to see Jesus for who he is. Because one of the things that I'm sort of realizing the older that I get and the longer that I walk with Jesus is that if you see Jesus for who he is, you're gonna throw your whole life in him. Like you're gonna, you'll, you'll be all in. You won't be half-hearted. And I, and I think that, that Matthew's hope is that we'll become this people who really orient our whole lives around Jesus. You know, to be someone who worships Jesus, worships Jesus. And by worship, uh, I mean like wholehearted devotion. Like we, we've done a bit of disservice in the modern church because we've sort of chalked worship up to being music. It's this time before the service or at the end of the service where we just sing these songs and we read these lyrics off of the screen. But really, to worship actually means to, 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 it, it, that something becomes our telos, as it's called, referred to in the Greek, or our aim, that it becomes your hope, like your, your top hope, that it becomes your love, that it becomes your focus. And so Matthew's message really is, hey, I, I want you to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, not half-heartedly. Either, either go wholehearted in or just walk away because there's no in-between. You're either all in 
or, or you're all out. And so Matthew's message is really like, let's do this. This is Jesus's message even to his disciples. But man, let's be really honest this morning. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus is really difficult, isn't it? It's really difficult. Like it, it comes with its challenges that you face. And so this morning, I, th- I think you're going to see a couple of those challenges in this passage that they kind of pop out at us as you read through this text. And so it's really what we're going to do this morning is try to learn what it means to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus while being aware of these challenges that we come up against on a regular basis. And so as you read through this passage, there's really four characters that stand out at us. Who are they? One, you, you've got these chief priests and the elders, and I'll, I'll refer to them this morning as sort of the Bible teachers uh, of their day. I, I think that's fair. They were uh, the ones that, that upheld the law. They were the ones that knew all of the Old Testament, every jot and tittle. And so what's the deal with them? What's the deal with the chief priests and the elders? Well, we know that they don't like Jesus. They, they've made that extremely clear. We know that Jesus threatens um, everything that they know about how they see the Old Testament, that Jesus presents this threat to them, and that he threatens their whole cultural way of life. Like, so what are they doing? They're plotting to kill Jesus. They're in this palace plotting to kill Jesus. And so then you have this woman, and, and the woman's not named here, but, but John uh, actually names her in John 12. There's a very similar story that you can read in John 12 uh, to this passage. Um, that probably is the same woman, and John, in John 12, John refers to her as Mary. So there's this woman, not named in Matthew's account. She clearly loves Jesus. She loves Jesus. And this is the second character. And then you have the, thir- the third character, the disciples. The, the disciples are the best friends of Jesus. Like, they, they are his close followers. They absolutely love Jesus, but in this story particularly, they're kind of being the bullies of the story, aren't they? They're, they're being the know-it-alls. Like, it's what a lot of men, a lot of what us men do, right? We think we have everything figured out. Like, we know how it should go. So you have these disciples. And then the fourth character that you have here is Jesus himself. And, and Jesus is doing what Jesus does. Like, he surprises us with the way that he responds in things, with things and in moments like this. And he responds with such depth and Jesus responds with compassion and so there's these four characters that Matthew sort of sandwiches all together here and so which character of these four if you're reading this text would be the one that you would focus on which of these four is the one that gets your focus like having just read this I know there's specific people in the story that stand out to different uh, people in this room but which person is Matthew highlighting for us and so if you're all fired up and you're churched up, you're like, he's highlighting Jesus, right? Like, yes, like, good answer, you know, you, you win. Um, he is highlighting Jesus for us, mostly. He's the hero. But the woman in this story is really fascinating as you kind of study what she's doing and why she's doing it. And maybe some of you, like, as you read the story, the woman's the first person you go to, like, right away. Like, it has to be the woman. The, the woman sort of inspires us with this kind of reckless love that she has, right? This reckless devotion. But really, my, my point in laying this out for you is that each character in the section that you read, they actually matter to the whole story. And so as you read texts like this, like you have to understand 
each perspective from each person and what the purpose of Matthew sharing this is because they each sort of tell apart. And so each character is teaching us something about worshiping Jesus. Each character is teaching us something about wholehearted devotion to Jesus and what exactly that looks like for you and I. And so here's my first point this morning, is that the Bible is sort of always communicating like unashamedly to you and I through the stories that it tells, right? There's a reason things are being written. One of those messages that we see in this passage is that deep devotion to Jesus always trends towards the fringes. It just goes that way. Like, that's where real devotion typically and most often happens. So check this out. Matthew sets the scene for us. He, he, he gives you some, some sort of subtle and meaningful contextual clues in this passage. And, and what we understand is that location and people always matter when you're reading through the Gospels. Like, you need to always pay attention to these subtle clues that he gives us with regards to location. Like, if you have a study Bible and you have a map section in it, usually you're like, eh, so boring, I don't want to look at a map, right? I actually find myself in the map section a lot, like, Googling locations and seeing things and understanding why did that happen in the place it was. Like, honestly... You can ask uh, Dan and Sharon and my wife, the things that have tripped me out most about the times I've been in Israel are like standing in one place and realizing what took place there and realizing where another place is in context to where I'm standing. And it just kind of trips me out sometimes. I'm like, I can't believe that happened here. And that was all the way over here. Or being able to frame this in your mind, like the location of things actually does matter. It's not just boring. And so it can be helpful for us. And so I'm constantly finding myself kind of geeking out on these locations. And I think that in this passage, the location and the people do matter. And the reason why is because Matthew is this brilliant writer. Like, he's, he's a great writer. And he sandwiches this thing right in between. Like, if you notice what happened right at the very beginning of this passage, there's a plot to kill Jesus. And so now we haven't got to the section after this yet, but there's something that immediately happens after the story about the woman dumping this oil on Jesus. Like what happens directly after this? It's Judas plotting to kill Jesus. It's the same thing. It's, plot, it's sort of sandwiched in between here. And so Matthew slams this sort of right in the middle. He slams this section right in the middle. This, this, tr- this woman that's truly worshiping, giving her devotion to Jesus. And so Jesus has just told his disciples, look, my time is up. The end is coming. The end is near. Uh, And the whole point of that is just to say that none of this is a surprise to Jesus, right? None of this is random. Like Jesus is in full control of the story as it's playing out. Jesus is actually delivering himself up, it says. Like he's doing this. He's giving himself up. And at the same time, Matthew says this in verse 3 and 4, which trips me out. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the what? The palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they said, 
not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They're afraid that if they do it during the feast, the people are going to be ticked off. And so this is a political move on their behalf to try to wait until after the feast is over to actually plot to kill Jesus. But you have these men of privilege, these chief priests and these elders, these connected men, the, the religious elite of Jesus' day. They're like the Christian influencers of our day. I want you to imagine them like that. And where are they gathered at this time? They're in the palace. They're up in the palace. Where's Jesus at right now? Look at verse six. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Matthew doesn't have to give us this detail, but he does it on purpose, and he puts them right next to each, other, to each other in this passage, like he wants you to see it. And then what happens? Verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as Jesus reclined at the table. And so Jesus is nearing his death, <clears throat> he's rounding the corner, um, and Jesus is not in the palaces, but Jesus is in the home of an outcast of society, right? And, and he's getting this unexpected, awkward, perfume dousing by a woman. An <laughs> uh, anointing of this sort of that time was, was a common way in their day of expressing honor or expressing privilege. Like many kings were anointed with oil prior to their coronation to becoming kings of a kingdom. Like, the, she was making a statement in doing this. There was something she knew to be true about Jesus in doing this. And so she's expressing love. She's expressing devotion. She's expressing honor to Jesus. And this was extravagant, by the way, like super extravagant. Mark 14 in Mark's gospel, when he talks about the story, he adds a couple different details to this for us. In Mark, he includes the kind of oil that it was and the amount of perfume of oil that it was. He says that it was worth over 300 denarii, which in another um, passage we're told that one denarii is worth like one day's wages. And so guess what she's doing? She's literally dumping a year's salary on Jesus's head. A year's salary. Like, so in case you're kind of wondering, like, why in the world are the disciples freaking out? It's just a little bit of olive oil that she's putting on Jesus' head. No, it's like thirty to $40,000 worth of perfume that she's pouring out on Jesus. She's dripping onto Jesus' face. So this would have stunned the room. Like, no question. The room would have been like, what in the world is this woman doing? This woman is sort of showing this reckless love and devotion. So like she's potentially dumping out her life savings on Jesus. And now Matthew, who's always deliberate in why he writes what he does, isn't adding these details for you and I at random. Like he, he talks about these people, these plots, the palace, the, the worship in the house of a leper with a, a woman. Like this is intentional and it's interesting. Like Jesus launched his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. Like 10 years ago, we were in that passage, right? And, and then he comes down from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 8. And who does Jesus interact with immediately when he comes down from the Sermon on the Mount? He, he comes down from the Sermon on the Mount and he interacts with a leper. It's the very beginning of his ministry. So like the first encounter Jesus has as he launches his ministry is with a leper and he cleans him. And, and then here at the end of his life, as Jesus is rounding the corner and he's at the end, he's gonna lay down his life 
And who does he choose to be with at the end? A leper. Like, it's over and over again that, that Jesus is always hanging out with people like this, the sick and the defiled. And throughout all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, it's so often the women that Jesus is allowing into these amazing moments of his life. I mean, the, the women culturally in Jesus' day, the way that the culture treated women was like they were second-class citizens. And so it's fascinating that Jesus sees these women and he allows them to be integral parts of history, like integral parts of Jesus' story. Like it would have been so taboo for Jesus first to be in the house of a leper, which probably was a leper that Jesus had healed at some point, but Jesus is in his house. Let alone he's in the house of a leper with a woman. But yeah, it, it seems to be that the, the women at times often seem to really get Jesus better than anybody else. And don't get me wrong, like the disciples are men and they matter. Like I'm not trying to be super woke here. But, uh, but I'm just saying that, that women like get these glimpses, these opportunities to be a part of these really precious moments in the story of Jesus. And so it's a woman that gives birth to Jesus, right? And you're like, well, duh, like it had to be that way. Well, actually, like Jesus has a mom, which is crazy. Um, and it didn't have to be that way. Like Jesus could have been like swamp thing, right? Like he just like appears out of the water or something like that. But that's not the way that God set it up. Like God set it up for Jesus to actually come through a woman. Like what an interesting thing. It's an outsider, like a Canaanite woman in Matthew's gospel who's the first to call Jesus the son of David, like she really got it. It's a woman who anoints Jesus' body for burial. It's, it's mostly women who are standing at the cross when Jesus is dying, like they're the ones that are being loyal. It's women that want to go to the tomb first. And guess who like the first missionaries that we see in scripture are? It's women. They're the ones that he appears to first and they're the ones that go tell the men because the men are all afraid. And so over and over again, you, you get these little snippets throughout the gospel, and it's so interesting. That, and so what does it call us to? The point is not that, that, that women and lepers make better disciples. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. But it's just that wholehearted discipleship, it, it typically flourishes in the powerless, in the underclass, in the poor, in the fringe of society, and that actually should be a massive challenge to you and I because we're kind of a church in an area that isn't necessarily made up of that demographic, mostly. I don't know everybody here, but my guess is that we're not a church made up of the powerless and the underclass and the poor and the fringe of society. So does this mean that as a church, like we need to be the people that move to the, the fringes of society, like to the grimy places, right? Not necessarily. Does it mean that you and I need to become poor in order that we need to get close to Jesus? No. But, but I think it just means that, that, that we shouldn't expect that deep devotion to Jesus, if that's what we really desire, what we really want, can be expected in the limelight. It doesn't work like that in the Gospels. Nowadays, you, even, you, you have this thing called Christian influencers and celebrity Christians, which like kind of turns my stomach, to be honest with you. Like it doesn't seem to line up with what we read here. 
but we shouldn't be a people that dive into Jesus and give everything we have for, for Jesus in order to become famous, in order to um, be in a place of privilege, in order to have glamour, like it just doesn't work that way. And so we need to be aware of this. And so what I'm saying is, don't be surprised when your deep devotion to Jesus, when you give him everything, you end up feeling like an outcast. Don't be surprised at that. Historically, that's the way it goes, like especially when you're living in 2022, right? Don't be surprised if it makes you feel misunderstood in relationship to the society around you when you choose to go all in and deep dive devotionally into Jesus. Like many Christians right now, it's interesting, um, currently, they're concerned with what they see in the world, and they're concerned with what they see in the United States of America particularly, and so they sense and they feel this sort of steady drift in our government, right, or in our culture, or in our media, or whatever it is, and so they see this sort of steady drift away from biblical values, and so they're concerned about religious freedom. They're concerned about what it is that's bearing down on us. They're concerned about the oppression of people of faith, people that follow Jesus. They're concerned about a loss of voice and not having a voice at the table anymore in leadership. And, and I get all of that because there might be a day in yours and I's lifetime where you may not get the job that you want or get the promotion that you want because of certain Christian convictions, biblical values that you uphold in your life. That could happen. I mean, the reality is that for me as a pastor, there may be a day in my lifetime where because I won't say or affirm specific things, whatever they are, I could be in legal trouble. That may happen in my lifetime. That could happen. The, the, and these concerns, like they seem fitting. Like it's understandable to have these concerns. I totally get it. But I think it's good that we're aware and, and we're careful or, or concerned about the drift in our society. But here's the thing that doesn't compute with the scriptures. is the sense of panic. The sense of panic that you see in Jesus' church. Like in many Christians, like this sense of panic. And I'm like, did you read the Bible? Because sometimes I want to say like, stop acting as if you're the first people that have, first people ever in history that have ever had to face this. Because there are Christians like in our culture freaking out right now about the drift in government. They're getting angry about this as if we're the first ones that have ever been treated this way in all of history, history and actually you're in a long line of people in history that have been treated horribly by society for what they stood for. We're not the first. It's been going on for 2,000 years. And I'm simply saying, like, we need to be a people who are aware of these things, and I think that this calls us to be an encouragement as we feel these things coming upon us, like, as we feel a sense of concern that those of us who really seek Jesus to worship him, that it's actually in the places where Christians are most oppressed or, or Christians are outcast that things actually start to flourish. That's historically how it's gone. Like Christians flourish in the fringes. So we don't panic as if Jesus uh, and his church are somehow like gonna go away because we get pushed out of the limelight. <laughs> or the marketplace, or because we get pushed out of leadership or whatever role it is, we don't look to be the outcast. 
But I'm simply reminding us that if our devotion to Jesus puts us on a trajectory that leaves us out of certain social circles and pushes you into the realm of the outcasts, puts you out of places of potential job promotions or out of places of popularity, man, like, take courage as the church. As hard as it is, we need to be a church that will actually take courage in the season because that's where you find Jesus in the Bible all the time. Every time you see Jesus there, he's in the places that nobody else would go while the religious elite are doing what? Hanging out in the palace plotting to kill Jesus. Hanging out in the palace to make all the theologically proper decisions. And Jesus is with the leper in a house with a woman dousing him with perfume. And so Jesus and those who truly worship him are actually drawn to the lonely. Like, we're drawn to the powerless. Second thing is that true devotion sort of brings out the best and the worst in us. And I know that sounds weird, but stay with me for a second. Who's the hero in this story? All the church folks are like, Jesus. Yes, right, again. You know, like, (laughs) Jesus is the hero. But who's the amazing example in the story? It's this woman. And it's pretty clear in the story that this woman did something right. Like, who are the bad guys in this story? The chief priests and the elders, for sure. But who gets close second in the story? The disciples. At least that's the picture that Matthew paints for us, right? That they, they didn't do something that she did. So Matthew doesn't ever do the disciples any favors, right? So after this woman lavishes Jesus with her love and her devotion, you read this in verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were what? Indignant. In other words, they were frustrated, and they were critical of this woman. Like, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So, like I said, it's like watching thirty to $40,000 drip down Jesus' head. I was talking in sermon group this week, and we were like, what's one thing, an illustration I could use on Sunday that's just going to shock everybody, you know? Like, I'm going to go grab a $100 bill out of the giving basket and light it on fire before your eyes, and you'll be like, I can't believe he did that. But what she's doing before the disciples is shocking. They don't get it. And understand that it's in this time when the disciples have left everything, get this, they've left everything behind to follow Jesus. They don't have anything along the ways of resources in their own lives. And so, of course, you're going to get this reaction like, like, not just give to the poor. Like, what about me? You know, like, I literally left everything to follow this guy. Like, don't just douse him in that. Like, we could make some serious coin off of that and take care of something else. And so before you and I go and we, like, start to get frustrated with the disciples on this specific instance, here's my thought. Is it, what does it look like for us to be a little bit more curious about this, right? Like, in general, I would say that Before you judge anybody, it's probably good to be a little bit more curious. Like, ask some more questions. Look for their humanity, right? Are they simply being jerks? Are the disciples just seeking to be flat-out jerks? Because I actually think they're sort of like us. 
they're complicated, right? I don't know about you, but I have good moments and I have bad moments. Anybody else have bad moments laced with good moments in your life? And this isn't one of the disciples' like shining moments. They're, again, they're like you and I. They're disciples. They're followers of Jesus. They're in process. And so they're trying. But sometimes the reality is, is that they get it wrong. And so they're making this mistake. But they're actually making a mistake for reasons that kind of make sense. And I actually think that they're trying to be theologically precise, right? They're just trying to work out these truths that they've already learned, like have they heard something like this before, what Jesus is saying to them? Doesn't it sound familiar to other things that Jesus has told them, right? When they're thinking about all this money and the fact that it could be given to the poor, what does that make us think about? Like, didn't Jesus say almost the identical thing to the young ruler? Sell everything you have and give to the poor. Then you can be perfect. And that was a while ago in the book of Matthew. And then just last week, What's the last sermon that these guys just heard from Jesus? The last sermon that Jesus preached to them was about feeding and helping the poor. Literally, Jesus just literally told them this. And so he, to take care of the poor, he said, um, he, he said to take care of the poor because in the end, you'll actually be judged by what you did for them. For how you treat them is actually how you treat me. And what you don't do for them is what you didn't do for me is what Jesus just told them. And so Jesus goes on to say, did you visit them? Did you give them a drink? Like, isn't it crazy that Jesus just preached this to them? And now these guys are like, oh, you could have given that to the poor. <laughs> like, we just heard you talk about this, Jesus. Like, see, Jesus, we're listening. Like, we're totally tuning in with what you're Wait, we're, we're, we're picking up what you're putting down, Jesus. And so before we go like beat up on the disciples, we need to see that they're actually trying to be faithful. They're actually trying to follow through with what Jesus has told them to do. They're trying to be good disciples. And so ask yourself, are they wrong in what they're saying to this woman? Yes. But it's sort of this, this misguided attempt at being really truthful, like a really truthful, devoted disciple. That's what they want to be. Everybody in this room, apart from Judas, wants to be devoted to Jesus, right? And the woman, in love with Jesus, is at her absolute best at this moment. And the disciples are sort of like showing off their shadowy side, right? Like, ugh, you guys, you're, you're a little cringy, you know what I mean? You've got, you've got this dark side. We all have that. But in this one moment, they've literally put principles over people. And principles are really great, aren't they? Like principles are actually things that, that we live by. But they're fighting for truth and helping the poor. Like that's what they're desiring. But in the process of doing that, what are they doing? They've actually started bullying the person right before them and fighting for principles and process. And I think so often this is exactly what we do as Christians. Like we've got the truth in mind. We want to uphold the truth and do the right thing. But the person in front of us just doesn't matter anymore. Because it's all about upholding the truth, right? Because the truth and the principle matter more than the person that's right before us. And I don't think that's the example that Jesus sets for us. Sometimes the best of disciples who are actually standing up for truth, because they're trying to get it right, end up getting it wrong, don't they? 
And I've seen this over the years, like how easily, like devoted disciples of Jesus, like devoted churches, great meaning people, even for the sake of trying to love people, drift from hard truth. Do you not see that in our society today? It's all about love. It's all about social Social gospel, like it's, it's all about doing for others, right? And, and, and you veer from hard truth. Like, and that might be like an, it, kind of an oversimplification, but we see this a lot. Like it all becomes about love, and so we forsake truth in order to go after people in love. But truth and love are never at odds with one another, are they? Like Jesus is actually the culmination of the two. Then there's this other side of evangelicalism where it's, it's so easy to be all about truth and upholding the principle that we actually failed to learn how to love people that are right before us. We literally bully people because we're upholding the truth. And that's not Jesus either, is it? Like, he is the perfect combo of the two. And it's really difficult. Like, Jesus embodies this for you and I. How many of you are married in this room? They probably read 1 Corinthians 13 at at your wedding, didn't you? (laughs) Like, you know this passage. What is love? And love never puts truth, or, 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 sorry, yeah, it never puts truth and love at odds with one another. Like, love never does that. And so a great example of this that, that I think is true in this passage is this, is that there are some people who, who are devoted Christians, disciples of Jesus, who devote themselves to soup kitchens, right? What an amazing work. Like, I'm 100% in, I wanna go feed the poor. Like, what an amazing thing. But they distance themselves from the sacraments, from the public gathering of Jesus' church, And then you see on the flip side of this, you literally see people who like lead the prayer gatherings at church that are all about biblical education classes that will never step foot in a soup kitchen. And you're just like, how in the world does this happen in the Christian church when Jesus is the combo of the two? He's both truth and love, right? And I think this story sort of wakes you and I up to those blind spots that we have. And Matthew's waking us up to our own self-righteous delusions like it's so easy for us to fall into these traps and Matthew sort of calls us to honesty and I think it's clear here be honest like if you want to be a truly devoted disciple of Jesus be honest be real get more honest about yourself like we spend so much time trying to pick out other people's truths you know like discover their honesty and very little time pointing the finger on ourselves and saying, are we real? Are we, are we truthful? Are, are we honest people? Like, where's our blind spots? What, what are the areas in our life that Jesus needs to step into? Third thing is that your devotion to Jesus may not always be clear, but it'll always be used. And so after this like harsh criticism from the disciples toward this woman, Jesus steps in and he, Jesus, again, does what he does best, right? He, he, he sort of cleans up this mess. And so verse 10 says, But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. 
In, in pouring this ointment out of my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What an amazing section of scripture. So the disciples sort of ask, why do you waste that? And Jesus looks at them and says, like, why are you hurting her? And the disciples are seeing this, and they're saying, like, why are you being irresponsible with money, right? And Jesus looks at them and says, why are you being irresponsible with this person? Because Jesus sees her. And so Jesus doesn't just offend her. He actually sort of reinterprets what it is that she's doing for the disciples. Isn't that really rad how he does that? Like, he sort of redefines what she's doing for them so that they can get it. Like, he actually sort of reinterprets her and this act of devotion in this moment of humiliation for this woman. And there's some scholars that, that say like, um, that, that would say like, you know, she, she had, had she walked in the room and had she said to Jesus like, would you like for me to dump my life savings out upon your head? Jesus would have been like, no, give to the poor. <laughs> but because she did it anyway, no questions asked. And now, because she's like essentially being bullied and humiliated by these disciples, Jesus comes in and he starts to clean it up. And I read through six different scholars on this specific passage. Not a single one that I read through really said that this woman intended for her uh, anointing, this to be like an anointing specifically for the purpose of preparing Jesus for his burial. And yet, that's what we might assume, right? But, but I think she loves Jesus so much that she wants to honor him. So she just reaches for what it is that she has and what she knows, and she comes to Jesus like a child. And so what does she have? Really expensive oil. And so that's what Jesus is getting, what she has. And maybe she hasn't thought through this very well, right? Like this isn't the most responsible thing. And maybe this may have been like an incredibly inappropriate thing to do at this time. This woman coming into the room with a bunch of men, but her desire was to be loyal. She wants to honor Jesus. She wants to please him. She wants to express her love for Jesus. And after she does this, she's standing there, maybe even a little bit humiliated by what the disciples, how they respond but Jesus doesn't offend her. Like he, he sort of, again, reinterprets her. He takes her at this act of love. And Jesus begins to rewrite it into something that's not just precious, but actually something that's like perfectly useful for the work that Jesus is doing. And so something that was an incredible act of intimacy and love towards Jesus, something between her and her Savior, Jesus turns into this piece of history that actually, he says, will be remembered forever that it will be meditated on, that it will be preached about for centuries. Like, it's so amazing that Jesus sort of memorializes what it is that this woman did. Like, can you imagine the look on the, the disciples' faces in this moment? They're thinking, like, she got it wrong, and she's thinking, like, I just love you. <laughs> like, I just love Jesus. I, I just want to be devoted. Like, he's worth everything to me. And she's not necessarily being strategic about what it is she's doing. She's not trying to be famous or gain notoriety through this. She's just trying to be faithful. And to Jesus, that was enough. And so I think this shows that 
not just that Jesus has this great compassion on your and I's like lack of awareness of these misguided attempts in our lives, but also that Jesus has got this incredible sort of creative generosity towards you and I. Like it's unbelievable actually. I mean, just throw yourself at Jesus and he'll work it out, right? You don't have to have all the answers because you and I are kind of control freaks. We wanna have everything figured out before we launch into something. And Jesus is just like, throw yourself at me. Like Jesus could have said, like what she has done will be told in memory of me and my sacrifice and my love for this world for centuries to come is what Jesus could have said. And it would have been totally fine for Jesus to say this, but what he says is, what she has done will be told in memory of who? Her. She's been a great example. She made her whole life about Jesus. And, and Jesus said, I'm, I'm making my whole life about you. Like she dies all in for him, and he's like, I'm diving all in for you. This is the message that we're proclaiming in the next week, church. Is as you give yourself fully to him, he actually gave himself fully for you. He's all in. And so here's what I would say, like, in response to maybe the question, like, what kind of Savior does that? What kind of God does this? And I'd say, like, a God who's offering you the, the ability to let it go, right? Like, I think there's a movie a song in Frozen like that, right? Like a let it go, let it go. He's offering you the ability to relax, like to come to him and not have to feel like you have everything figured out, to literally launch yourself at him and trust that he will do the work that he needs to through what it is that you're offering him. That this God who's saying, trust me, like relax in me, like you don't have to have it all figured out. Like some of, some of you think that literally the weight of all of this is on your shoulders to figure it all out. And I'll remind you this morning that it's not. Like you do the best you can and you give him your best and you love Jesus. But this morning as we come to take communion this morning, as you come to the cup, which represents Jesus' blood and his body, the bread broken for you and I, here's what, what I want you to think about. Like when we take communion, what are we doing? We're actually proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns when we take communion. And here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what know-it-all-ism in you do you need to lay down this morning? You've tried hard to figure it out, to dial things in, to do it all right. I mean, you don't have to lay down your convictions. Like, I just mean this whole posture of like know-it-all. Like we're living in a day and age where we just act like we've got it all figured out and the rest of the world is against us, right? We as Christians know it all. And the reality is that every single day that I get up and the older I get, the more I realize I don't know it all. Anybody else in the same boat with me? Like I'm like, wow, I don't know a lot. <laughs> you know, I might feel more dumb every day I wake up as I get older. I'm not really sure. But what I do know is as I launch myself at Jesus, he knows how to do what he does best with me. Take my life, Lord. Do what you want with what I have. And I don't need to have it all figured out. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up here and I'm gonna ask Neil to come up and we're gonna take communion together. 
There's some of you in this room this morning that have a ton of hard decisions you have to make in life right now. There's this restlessness that exists in your soul. And that restlessness that that's causing inside of you, here's my challenge to you as you come take communion this morning, is that you ask God to teach you how to relax in him. And to show us how to just do what's best, you know, to do what's most loving in the right moment, like today, right? Like what's the most loving thing to God and to our neighbor around us? And don't worry about how it's going to turn out because I promise you that this story shows that God will actually write your obedience into something really, really amazing and beautiful. Something that you did not see coming. And that's the greatest story of all is that God took the screw-ups and the most far off and the ones in the fringes and used them as examples of people that were willing to give everything. It's not always the rich and those hanging out in palaces that Jesus is using as examples. He's using a woman willing to give of what she had, which happened to be a whole lot, and maybe irresponsible even what she's, in what she's giving. But Jesus says he'll use his, her examples for history to teach others about what she did and what that looks like for you and I. I'm going to ask Neil to come up and lead us in communion this morning.